As you're turning in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. He will stretch you, but he won't fail you. He'll never forsake you. He'll stretch you, but he knows your breaking point. He wants us all to grow spiritually. The Holy Spirit is conforming us, according to Romans chapter 8, after the image of Jesus. 1 John chapter 2 says, if anyone claims to know him, they must walk, even as he walked. Christian, follower of Christ. Amen. Now, I don't know if they told you today, I know we've got many guests, but as we close out Black History Month, we usually have a soul food luncheon. So right down the hall, immediately following the service, you will be able to partake of and indulge in many of the delicacies that held our people down for a minute. If you're health conscious, you, you, you can uh, partake. Um, do it slightly if you need to. Uh, but before we go get the soul food, somebody say, don't preach long, Pastor. Uh, because I, I hear that there, there's going to be trucks out there with fish and chicken and all kinds of things. But before we get to soul food, we need some food for the soul. Amen? Can the food for the soul get an amen? Amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 21, let us pray. Jesus, thank you for what you said, that your food was to do the will of him who sent you, that satisfied you, obeying your father. You also said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Father, as we open the scripture, whether personally or now corporately, we are being exposed to your breath, to your mouth, to your will, to your way. Your word, the things that are on your mind, we are fortunate to have in print. And we thank you. Holy Spirit, would you teach us the Bible today? Holy Spirit, would you help me to preach the Bible today so that we can have a supernatural encounter? May this not simply be a monologue. May it be a dialogue between heaven and earth that you would meet us in this place and that we can look at the lives of the patriarchs and see that it's all common to man and that you will not leave us, you will not forsake us, that your goodness, your mercy, your love, they are running after us and they change us. Do a great work today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. This is our last message today in our series of If These Walls Could Talk. 
And we went behind the walls or the tent curtains of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar this month just to see that what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that no temptation has ever overtaken you that is not common to man. We have a tendency of putting people on pedestals and thinking that because they're called by God or used by God, they don't have struggles and issues. That's the furthest from the truth. And in this series, it was my heart and my hope that God would encourage those of us who are struggling in relationships, who have broken relationships, who have failing or struggling marriages, those who are contemplating divorce, those who are in the throes of divorce, those who are on the other side of divorce. I just wanted to come by during this series and encourage you to say that although certain relationships may struggle, your relationship with God doesn't have to struggle. And although certain relationships may have come to an end, that doesn't mean there was an end of God's favor in your life. Every day is a new beginning with God. And so I pray that you would not allow anyone, especially the church, to lay shame on you because you're in a season or a moment of struggle. Well, I was born in 1968. There's some folks here who can go back a little further than that. Paul and Carolyn Revere. I'm not going to point y'all out. Y'all can go a little further back than that. But if you were a black person growing up in the 60s, there's a great chance that either your house or your grandmother's house had three pictures on the wall. If you grew up in the 60s, there was going to be a picture of Jesus, white Jesus, on the wall. That picture was going to be in your grandmother's house. Mm -hmm. Can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? That, that was in the house. And then next to the Jesus picture was a picture of Martin Luther King Jr. Am I right about it? That, that was in your house, your grandmother's house. Uh-huh. And then when you went to church, that same picture of Dr. King was on the church fan. That you wave to keep cool. Hey, that's how it was. But then the third picture in many black homes growing up in the 60s was a picture of JFK, John Kennedy. So those three pictures would hang. I know when we would go see Darina's grandparents in Charleston, South Carolina, really they lived in a small town called Monk's Corner in Charleston. And uh, they would have those pictures. I mean, those pictures were so old, it looked like Jesus actually posed for the picture. I mean, they were old pictures. <laughs> but what those three have in common and why they were hung in so many homes is because they modeled for us as a people liberation, freedom, emancipation, deliverance, even hope. So some would say, Pastor, I get it with Jesus. I get it with Dr. King. 
What's up with JFK? Well, I need to let you know something. Back in the 60s, black folks loved themselves some JFK. And when he came along, he was really a picture of hope. He was an inspiration of what America could be. Because back in the 1960s, there was another guy running by the name of Barry Goldwater, and he was a Republican, and he was very conservative, and he didn't really speak much to the need for social progress. But things had shifted in the 60s, because ever since uh, Lincoln wrote and signed the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, black people by and large were called to be a part of the party of Lincoln. Lincoln was a Republican. So black people in the country, by and large, were Republicans because not only was there emancipation uh, under Abraham Lincoln, but there would be freedom through the 13th Amendment, and there would also be reconstruction uh, that would begin to try to change the legacy of slavery in the South. And, and Reconstruction was succeeding. And that's why those who came in power put an end to it because they saw what America was becoming. But for black people, they looked at that party as the party that caused the needle to move in the lives of the African-American community. But things shifted in the 60s where blacks were loyal Republicans. They then became Democrats because under JFK and then moving into President Lyndon Johnson, there would be social advancements made for black people that were unheard of at the time. In 1964, there was the Civil Rights Act, a bill that came to pass that shut down discrimination in public places. And then in 1965 was the Voting Rights Act that shut down many of the things and the obstacles that were put in the way of black people trying to vote because your vote was your voice, your vote was your power. So there were all kinds of obstacles like poll taxes and literacy tests and all kinds of things to discourage the black vote because there were some who felt that if black people understood their power, if they ever came together and began to vote, things could change. Wow. History is repeating itself because today in 2023, there are still people trying to stop black people, elderly, poor black people from getting to the polls. Well, we made it before, we're going to make it again. And so when John F. Kennedy was in the White House from 1961 to 1963, it was called Camelot. Camelot, that uh, mythological place of uh, King Arthur and his court. It just spoke of the romance and the ideology of that time where people mythologized uh, Jacqueline and John F. Kennedy as these are our knights and our prince and princess in shining armor that they represented the best of what America could be. So that White House was called Camelot. Those were the Camelot years. And again, black people understand this because when Barack and Michelle came to the White House, it wasn't so much Camelot, it was Carmel Lot because we saw some black people, people who looked like us, and it gave many of us hope, so it was Carmel Lot. 
And we were encouraged because, again, you're leaders. You want them to represent the best of us, even if you're romanticizing it just a little too much. And that's what was going on with JFK. However, trouble came to Camelot. Um, The pristine veneer was rubbed off when people began to realize that President Kennedy was a womanizer. His brother Bobby, womanizer. And there are many who are writing books today even saying that Bobby and the president shared women, one of which was Marilyn Monroe. And so there was a time when the president was out on the campaign trail and he stopped in New York City. And this was before his birthday. But his brother-in-law set it up where Marilyn Monroe, who was probably the most sought-after blonde, the most sought-after woman of the day, uh, she came and sang happy birthday to him before his birthday. And when she came, she came in a very voluptuous dress. And again, she is a person who has this kind of reputation. She's given across this aura uh, of being a sex symbol. And she sang... Happy birthday, Mr. President. And people looking around saying, I I, I think this is going to cause some problems in his marriage based on what we see going on here in New York City. So there was some trouble in Camelot. I want to let you know that just because you're famous, that doesn't mean you won't have trouble. Just because you're wealthy, that doesn't mean you won't have trouble. And for those of us who are believers, just because we're believers, that doesn't mean we won't have trouble. So enter Abraham and Sarah. They were famous, but they had trouble. They were wealthy, but they had trouble. They were also believers in Yahweh, but they still had trouble. And so today, let me talk on the subject of trouble in Beersheba. In other words, trouble in Abraham and Sarah's house. Trouble in Abraham and Sarah's marriage. Trouble in Beersheba so that we can recognize we're not by ourselves when we have intense fellowship in our homes. Because it's not that conflict is going to come. It's inevitable. As we said last week, it's how we handle the conflict. Because it seems that the great patriarch Abraham and the great matriarch Sarah had become separated in their marriage after Isaac was born. Now, what I'm sharing with you, I didn't learn in seminary. I didn't learn in Bible school. I just learned through simple observation, reading the text, seeing some things that I had never seen before. And one of the reasons I didn't see them is because even in the church, we want to paint pictures that romanticize the people that God uses. We don't want to look at their wounds, their blemishes, uh, the things that make them or, or, or remind us of how imperfect they were. We just have a way of wanting to put people on pedestals and sometimes even ourselves But the pain of being barren, coupled with the pressure of living 25 years under a covenant to be a great nation, 
no doubt took a toll on their marriage. It appears Abraham and Sarah made too many withdrawals and not enough deposits. Are y'all hearing me today? If you're going to be married and if you're going to live happily ever after, you got to make more deposits than you do withdrawals. Because if you make more withdrawals than deposits, you're going to be overdraft. If you make more uh, withdrawals than deposits, you're going to be bankrupt. You're going to see insufficient funds. You're going to be up there in line punching the numbers, beep, 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 beep. And rather than approve coming up, they're going to be like, call the police, get this person right here. They're perpetrating a fraud. They're trying to act like they have something in the bank, but they don't. And your bank statement is in the red as opposed to being in the black because you're making too many withdrawals and not enough deposits. And so one of our classes here on Sunday morning, the marriage class, talks about love languages, knowing your spouse's, your mate's love language so that you can make deposits into their love language so that you're making deposits into them. But if you don't know their language, don't care to know their language, or you're just selfish, you're going to be doing more withdrawals than deposits. And here are some of Abraham and Sarah's marital withdrawals. Abraham, number one, did not protect Sarah, but wanted her to protect him by lying for him. He asked his wife to lie so that he might be saved. Abraham's lies put Sarah in compromising situations with other men at least two times. So her husband's lies saying, tell them you're my sister, not my wife, so that they won't kill me. You saved me. But those lies put her not only with other men, but maybe even in the bedrooms of other men. I'm here to let you know that that was a withdrawal. Number two, Sarah saw Abraham go out zealously to protect and deliver his nephew Lot. But she didn't see that same kind of energy when it came to protecting her. Help me, somebody. You don't have any energy to protect me, but your little nephew living over there in Sodom, you're going to get your train service and go and rescue him? I didn't see that kind of energy with me. That was another withdrawal. Sarah's plan of giving her maidservant Hagar to Abraham as a second wife in order to be a surrogate mother failed miserably, and that was a withdrawal on their marriage. Abraham, the spiritual leader of his home. Everywhere you see, he's building uh, 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 um, altars to the Lord. He's praying. He's talking to God. But when Sarah had that plan, take my maidservant, that brother did not talk to Jesus at all about that. He married her, had a child with her. That was another withdrawal in Sarah's heart, even though it was her plan. Sarah demanded Abraham fix the problem she created with Hagar. Withdrawal. But Abraham deflected the responsibility back to Sarah. Another withdrawal. Again, we make superheroes out of these ordinary people who are just like us. Because as men, we don't always stand up and be servant leaders in our home. A lot of times we're like Adam, being passive, standing by while the devil is talking to our woman. And rather than stepping up and stepping into the matter, 
We stay back because the Bible says when Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, Adam was right there with her. He was passive. He was quiet. And so that thing has been passed down to all of us as men. And through the help of God, Jesus, the second Adam, we got to resist passivity as men. My God. Sarah dealt harshly with Hagar, the mother of Abraham's baby, causing her to flee. And that was a withdrawal now from Abraham's heart. Sarah had to deal with Hagar and Ishmael living in proximity with them for 14 years. That's another withdrawal. Sarah's anger exploded again and she demanded Abraham cast out Hagar and his son Ishmael, knowing how he felt about him. And this move brought Abraham great displeasure, withdrawal. Genesis chapter 21, verse 11, it says, And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. The matter, when Sarah said, get rid of them, put them out. And the Bible says that this was a party that Abraham threw to celebrate the weaning of Isaac. So Sarah shut the party down that Abraham threw and said, get them out of here. That was a withdrawal, and the Bible says that he was displeased. It says it two times in Genesis 21, 11, and then in verse 12. I looked up the word displeasing in the Hebrew, and it means sadness. So Abraham was saddened by the fact that Sarah said, get rid of Hagar and your teenage son Ishmael. It made him sad. But to go deeper into that Hebrew word, it literally means to break into pieces. So he was displeased. He was sad. He was broken into pieces over this. And might I suggest to you that this was the proverbial last straw for Abraham. Another withdrawal was that Sarah restricted Abraham from giving resources to Hagar and Ishmael. He could only give them water when he sent them away. That was another withdrawal. So if you are married or marriage-minded, you have to decide to make more deposits than you do withdrawals. And when you make a withdrawal, you have to own up to it and say, I know that what I did, what I said, hurt you, and I'm sorry. But then we... Do not ruin an apology with an excuse. You know, I'm sorry for that, but now you'd have messed it up. Just take it and say, I'm sorry. So when we make more deposits, excuse me, more withdrawals than deposits, we're hurting our marriage. Well, there are some biblical observations to suggest Abraham and Sarah became separated. Because I know some of us have probably never heard that before. But there are biblical reasons to suggest that they were separated. Number one, starting with Genesis chapter 21, verse 22, we begin to see Abraham doing life by himself. Sarah's name is last mentioned in Genesis 21, verse 12. Sarah is not mentioned in Genesis chapter 22, the chapter in which Abraham attempts to sacrifice Isaac. She's not there. Do you think she would have let that man take her son up on that mountain to 
kill him. No, no, she wasn't there. The next time we read of Sarah is when she dies in chapter 23, verse 1. But back to Genesis 22, God tested Abraham and told him to sacrifice his son Isaac. It doesn't say God tested Abraham and Sarah. It only says Abraham was tested. Hebrews chapter 11 says the same thing, only Abraham. Could it be that since Sarah, listen to this, kept Abraham's son Ishmael from him, that now Abraham is keeping Sarah's son Isaac from her? Let me see if I can say that again. I don't know if y'all got that. Because a lot of times when adults are at odds, they will use the children as uh, weapons to hurt the other. I'm talking about visitation day, visitation weekend. I'm talking about those who will have um, custody, custody battles, and, and they use the children as a weapon to hurt the adult. And, and so since Abraham said, you're going to tell my son to leave so I can't be with my son, and it displeased me. It broke me into pieces. I tell you what I'm going to do. You're not going to be able to see your son. No, pastor, they wouldn't do that. Why not? They're human just like us, and we do stuff like that. It's not right, but it's real. Let's stop being so super spiritual, and let's break it down, because folk fight, fuss, and cuss, many times in Jesus' name. Oh, they were struggling now. Abraham lived in a place called Beersheba or Beersheba. Genesis 21, verse 33 Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. This is chapter 21. This is again after Sarah made a withdrawal and broke him into pieces. You see him moving on his own now. And he goes to a place called Beersheba and he plants a tree. Now when you plant a tree somewhere, that means this my home up in here. I'm not leaving this place. I'm in Beersheba. I planted a tree. It's a tamarisk tree, and it is a shade tree. It's a slow-growing slave, a shade tree that symbolizes eternal life, which is why he called the name of the place or called on the name of the Lord the everlasting God as he plants a tree that symbolizes eternal life. Oh, he, he, he done moved out, got an apartment. He on his own. Genesis 22, verse 19 says, this is after he was about to sacrifice Isaac. God provided a ram in the bush, and he named the place Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. The ram dies in the place of Isaac, just like Jesus dies in the place of sinners. And so he goes back to his home. And Genesis twenty-two nineteen says, So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Well, Sarah died in a place called Hebron. Genesis chapter 23, verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Hebron is 26.4 miles from Beersheba, 26.4 miles. Now, in that day, 
it would take over a day to travel that long to go from Beersheba to Hebron or Hebron to Beersheba. Genesis 23 verses 2 through 4 say this. Don't miss this. So Sarah died in Kirjath Arba. That is Hebron. Stop and pause. Hebron is a key place. It will become a key place for the people of God. Because David will be anointed king in a place called Hebron. So Hebron was like the capital before Jerusalem came. So it was an important place. And this is where Sarah died. It's in the land of Canaan. The next sentence says, And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and weep for her. He came. So my question is, why wasn't he there when she died? Why did he have to come from where he was to where she was when she died? They were separated. They weren't living together. Still married, but separated. Can somebody be encouraged today that you're not by yourself? That you're using separation from your spouse Hopefully, in a, in a prayer, that there would be reconciliation after there's rest, uh, a separation. But that doesn't always ha happen with everyone. But some of us love Jesus, love God, and we're separated today. But that doesn't mean that's the end of the story. So Abraham came to mourn for her. Verse 3, Genesis 23. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So they were separated. So he came there. He says, I'm a visitor around here. I'm a foreigner in this area where my wife lived, but I want to buy some land to bury her. What I love about this is that although they were separated, there was still love because he was mourning for her. And the scripture says that he rose up, he stood up from before his dead, which meant that he got down on his knees wherever her body was laying and, and he mourned there. Because although they had some rocky times, all of it wasn't rocky. He could be thankful and he loved her. Well, there's evidence that suggests Abraham and Sarah were separated and they remained civil. See, some of us need to learn this. Just because we're separated, that doesn't mean we should lose our testimony. Man, it's quiet in here. Is it, are y'all thinking or y'all what? Usually I get some amens or something. Y'all like, man. Well, according to Genesis 23, verses 12 through 13 and verse 19, Abraham paid for Sarah's burial plot. He paid for it. They wanted to give it to him for free, but he said, no, I'm going to pay for it. That's love. That's being civil. And according to Genesis chapter 25, verses 1 through 6, Abraham didn't take another wife until Sarah was dead. So Abraham married again, but he didn't marry another woman while he was still married to Sarah outside of Hagar. That was a whole experiment that didn't work out too well. So there was some respect and some civility between them. And when Abraham died, he was buried where Sarah was buried in Hebron. Genesis chapter 25, beginning at verse 7. 
This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived, 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohor, the Hittite. The field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth, there Abraham was buried and Sarah his wife. Separated, but united in death. Pastor, what's going on? Well, although Abraham and Sarah may have been separated, they were not separated from the grace of God. I need to say that because there are some who feel like they have been shot down and condemned and judged in the body of Christ because they've had some marital problems, because they've gone through a separation, maybe even a divorce. But I want to let you know that your flaws do not frustrate God's faithfulness. Failed marriages do not frustrate God's faithfulness. Couples who are hurting and struggling do not frustrate God's faithfulness, nor his call on your life. We rebuke any notion of idolizing marriage as if that is the great qualifier or disqualifier of whether or not God can use you or whether or not you can enjoy life. You see, with all of his flaws, Abraham is still called the father of faith. And with all of our flaws, we are still called the children of God. With all of his flaws, Abraham is still called the friend of God. And with all of our flaws, we are still called friends of Jesus, John chapter 15, verse 5. And with all of her flaws, God still blessed Sarah with a miracle child. And with all of our flaws, God still blesses us with miracles. Now unto him who is able to do. And with all of their flaws, God still placed Abraham and Sarah in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. All of their flaws, they're still in the hall of faith being memorialized there as examples for you and me. And with all of our flaws, God still has us seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. No matter how much I say this, there's still somebody who thinks it's up to you. You still think you got to live perfectly. You got to do everything right. You need to be freed of that. You'll never do everything right. You'll never live perfect. Now I'm forgetting what's behind and I'm pressing forward. I'm, I'm reaching for the goal that's in Christ. But God knows that on my best days, I'm flawed. I find the principle, Paul said, when I would do good, evil is present with me. Solomon said there's not a person on the face of the earth who does good and doesn't sin. So God knows our frame, we're made of dust. And it's his goodness to dust that leads dust to repentance. It's his grace that causes us to want to do better. And with all of their flaws, God is still the star of Abraham and Sarah's story. 
Because when they were not faithful, he remained faithful to the covenant. And with all of our flaws, God is still the star of all of our stories. Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify you. No, glorify your father in heaven. So when they see you serving him, though flawed, but you're still serving him, people give God glory that he would use a chump, I mean, a person like you. We don't deserve to know him. We don't deserve to be used by him. It's only by his grace and his mercy. Okay, I'm still not coming through. Sometimes musicians have to play with broken instruments. I'm closing here. Sometimes a musician has to play with broken instruments. And my good friend, Kirk Whalem, he told me a story of a time where he had to play with a broken saxophone. He was playing as the band director for Whitney Houston back in 1991, and they were invited to Saturday Night Live so she could sing, I'm your baby tonight. And he's in the background, he's got his saxophone, and he's directing the band, he's playing, she's hitting all the notes, it's going so smooth. But then somewhere around two minutes and a half, Kirk's saxophone neck breaks. But Kirk has a way of continuing to play even though there was a rupture in his instrument. We are instruments of God. We're broken. We don't always play right. We got some strings missing. Uh, 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 we're an instrument but we need some polishing and some cleaning and we, we need uh, the woodwinds and, and we need that, that fret. Uh, we're missing that. But, but, but God is the master musician who takes broken, imperfect, flawed, fallen people into his wonderful, merciful hands. And by the wind of the spirit, he blows through broken saxes. He blows through broken clarinets. He blows through broken trumpets. He plays stringed instruments, missing strings. He uses us. And when he plays through us, people don't look at the instrument and say, wow, look at that instrument right there. Woo, that's a nice instrument, though. They look at the one playing the instrument and say, look at how awesome he is to, or she is to play with broken instruments. If we can get our eyes on God and see that he uses broken folks and he blows through us so that the world might hear the gospel in our brokenness. Because if I go downtown to Nashville, there's a museum in downtown Nashville, the African-American Museum of Musical History, and it tells the story of black music through the ages, and they have various exhibits there. They have artifacts in this museum, and one of the artifacts in the museum is a saxophone from Kirk Whalem. 
And when you go in there and you look at the sax, wow, that's great. But you look more at the person who played the sax so that the sax might be honored in the way in which it is. Oh, I'm not much here today. I'm here to let you know I'm not much. Anything good about me is only because of God. And if by chance I make it to the hall of faith, I know I'm going to heaven and I'll be on display in the kingdom of God. And folks are going to see me encased by his glory. They're going to look at me and say, okay, okay, that's nice. But the one who played him, the one who used him, the one who blew through him in spite of him, that's the one who gets all the glory. So you see a broken Abraham. You see a master musician in God. You see a broken Sarah. You see a master musician in God playing broken people all for his honor and for his glory. And I pray you would be encouraged today that he uses, he specializes in getting glory from broken instruments. Amen. All right. My sister. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 